we're going to be diving back into um, Revelation. We're going to close out Revelation 11 today. And um, I want to just start off with a prayer. Um, if you haven't been to worship yet, we're going to talk a little bit about what worship is. And I want to pull out, there's several different Greek terms that define what worship is. And I'm going to pull one out today that I really like because I think, I think it is defining. So let's just begin with prayer. Lord, as we come together before you, I just want to lift up um, this time as part of what we might call worship. As we come underneath your word, we think about what it means in our lives. Lord, um, speak to us through it. Lord, this is a word that, that just uh, we need to have, uh, not just in our ears, but in our hearts, to give us direction for the week ahead. And so I'm going to pray for that. Lord, lift up this time. We say in Jesus' name, let's say it together. Amen. Amen. We're going to start with verse 25 in Revelation 11. Uh, last week, I tried to make this, yeah, excuse me, Romans 11. Last week, well, here's why. So that last week we kind of made this point is I wanted to start off with an odd question. I asked you all, what is the most important piece of furniture in a church? And um, it's kind of a kind of a way of getting getting our attention focused on something that I think about a lot as a pastor. Um, we played with this a little bit. I did take you into the Revelation chapter two, and what I wanted to say is, you know, it, it, kind of in a joking way, when people think about churches and furniture, uh, we want padded pews to sit on, and we want it to be comfortable, and we want the screens to see people and. You know, in fact, heck, why not just have uh, iPads we can take home and sit in our lazy chair and watch, watch church that way. We, we kind of think of it that way. But I identified for you last week this idea from Revelation 2 that perhaps the most important piece of furniture in a church is none of the above, but rather a lampstand. It's a symbol. It's a, just a symbol. And what, what the lampstand stands for as you look at Revelation chapter 2 is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And over my years as a pastor, going way back to when I first got started in ministry, <clears throat> I wanted to know what makes churches great, what makes them great. Uh, I found a partner, I was living in Lincoln, believe it or not, I found a partner to go uh, visit churches. Uh, his name was Dennis Hyden, was a pastor in Kearney, Nebraska. I called Dennis up one day and I'd never met him. I said, Dennis, um, you don't know me. My name is Luke. I live in Lincoln and we're going to go to uh, Arizona. Who is this? <laughs> My name is Luke. I'm living in Lincoln and we're going to Arizona. Uh, what, are you, what are you talking about? I said, well, we need to study churches to see what makes them great. We went to some great churches in Arizona. We went all across the country. California, Arizona, all kinds of churches. And made a lot of discoveries. I, I discovered that, um, you know, one of, one of, my, one of my, my heroes, John Maxwell, is right. He says, sometimes uh, churches that seem really great are not as great as they seem. And sometimes churches that are not so great are not as bad as they seem. And uh, what makes a church great? Well, you go into all kinds of buildings. I've been in some of the biggest of all of them. And you discover it's not the building. And you listen to pastors preach, and you just say, it's not the pastor. And you discover, you, you, you listen to the programs that people have, it's not the programs. And you finally discover that a church either does or does not have within it the Spirit of God at work and on fire. It either does or it doesn't. 
And I will tell you that some of the some of the nicest looking places I've ever been in have everything you could possibly imagine, um, and the spirit's not there. And you you feel that you're like, Wait, what's going on here? That there just just doesn't seem there's no life in this thing. So <clears throat> Revelation says it this way. Revelation two says that uh, when when God sees a church that has a has abandoned Him as their strength, they've turned to their own selves. Uh, this is what we're going to do. This is our program. That that God comes and He tries to shake the church. And if the church pays no attention, He shakes it again harder. And pays no attention. He shakes it again harder, just like He does our lives. And, it, and finally, when we won't listen, He takes the lampstand and He says, "I'm going to remove it from its place." Now, it's not that the church can't get it back, but it removes the lampstand from its place. And uh, last week, I wanted to make the point that when you're studying Romans chapter 11, what you're looking at is a snapshot in time of Israel. And what's going on is this dichotomy between uh, what's happening to the Jews and what's happening to the Gentiles. And when you look at the Jewish church of Jesus' time, what is it lost, guys? What, is it, what does it no longer have? It doesn't have its lampstand. It has abandoned its calling. Uh, it's become a shell of what it's supposed to be. Instead of being a place of hope, it's become a place of the law. Uh, people are coming to make sacrifices to the temple. And the people who run the temple are saying to them, you know what, give us your money. And, and by the way, God may or may not bless you, depending upon what you believe. It, it sounds no different than Islam. It sounds the same thing as that. God may or may not bless you. Well, you know what? God said, that is not why I put you here on earth for Israel. I put you here on earth to do what? To bring my hope, the hope of the Messiah, to people. And you've lost that. And so what's happening in Romans 11 is, is Paul is identifying the fact that God has begun to harden the hearts of the Jews for the sake of now beginning to work amongst the Gentiles. This was blasphemy. This thought, this idea that God is going to take, take the gospel and begin to work amongst Gentiles was blasphemy for the Jews. And so you can imagine that part of, why, part of why the Jews wanted to kill Paul is because Paul is the guy who's saying, no, God is hardening you because you've, you've lost your lampstand and he's beginning to take the gospel out amongst the Gentiles. And now Paul says something important. He says, really, what is happening is God is, is forming Israel out of both the Jews and the Gentiles, but you have to watch out because Israel is not this physical body of people. It's all those who believe in Him. There will be some Jews who come to, come to faith. And now there will be an increasing number of Gentiles who will come to faith. And God is using that for His purposes. This is kind of where you pick up in verse 25 uh, of, of Romans 11. Kind of this idea that this is probably a mystery, it's hard for you to understand, but watch what God is doing. Starts off with these words, he says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mysterion, this mystery, my brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. In other words, God has not only removed the lampstand from them, but those who've turned away from him and have committed what we call the unforgivable sin. There is one. I, I always get, and people are always like, no, no, God can forgive any sin. I'm like, God can forgive any sin except the one that he said is unforgivable. 
Because then he would act against himself. What is the unforgivable sin? It's the rejection of the Holy Spirit. And so those who've begun to reject the Holy Spirit, God has begun hardening them, but the hardening is partial. Here's what that means, that there are Jews who during the time that Paul is bringing the gospel out to the Gentiles, there are Jews who will believe, who will trust. Um, not many, but there is a remnant of Jews who will. And now he says, here's, here's why this partial hardening is, is coming. He says, the partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There's a purpose behind it. While, while Israel is becoming hard, the Gentiles are beginning to listen. They're beginning to hear the gospel and want it. Um, he says, in this way, all of Israel, now he's talking again about spiritual Israel, all of Israel will be saved as it is written. This is a quote from Isaiah 59. The deliverer will come from Zion. He'll be Jewish. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. I think that's important. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. I'll tell you why I point that out is while you're reading Romans 11, there's this, there's this temptation to see it as something that's happening way back in the past and doesn't have much to do with us today. In other words, just history. We'll say, yeah, okay, I get it. I see that. The Jews fell away from God and God began to harden them and He used that period of time to bring Gentiles into faith. But it doesn't have much to do with us. I think it does. Uh, because you see it in the very first line, 25 lest you be wise in your own sight. That's a good way to say, beware. Here we are, we're the Church of America, we're living in America, and what I want you to think about is the time frame that we're living in. What's happening in the American church today? Very gospel-oriented, the American church today? Um, I don't know if you do a lot of, of studying in the church today, but I, I shared with you that when I was much younger, I went around the country kind of looking at what, what we consider to be some of the great churches of that time. Since that time, a lot has happened. A lot of the Bible has been abandoned by the church in America. Uh, today, I can go to a church that teaches just about anything that I want to believe. Um, I happen to, to believe, I'm just going to use this as, as an example. Sometimes people tell me I, I pick on this too much, but I happen to believe that um, God, when he, when he put His Word together, gave us a way to live, a very specific way to live. And uh, when somebody chooses, I, 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 I'm, I'm going to live a different way. I'm going to go against that. Um, they, that that there is a consequence for that. That God says, no, I, I can't bless you if you live like that. Now the example I'm going to use um, is the example of somebody who, who would come to me and they would say, uh, I am, somebody would say this to me, they'd say, I am gay. Okay, I'm going to say to that, I'm not going to say to that person, well then I hate you or God hates you. What I'm going to say to that person is, okay, are you willing to look at the way you're living and, and look at it in light of what the Scripture says. Are you willing to do that? Well, yeah, I go to this church and the, and the pastor stands up and he says, it's okay. He says, it's good, in fact, that this is how God created me and it's how He made me. I said, no, I'm not asking you that. What I'm asking you is, are you willing to look at what the Word of God says? Will you study that? What I'm saying is, pick, you pick it. 
You pick it. There are churches in America today that have moved so far away from the gospel of Jesus Christ as to say, um, I won't throw out the name of the church body, but my, my dad grew up in it. But there are church bodies today that say, it really doesn't even matter what you believe because all the roads are going to lead to the same place. When you die, you know, everybody goes to heaven. Like that is not scriptural. That is not what Jesus Christ taught. When churches move away from the gospel today in America, isn't it right to say that the same thing hap is happening here in our country that was happening in Rome at the time that Paul wrote these words? I'm going to come back to them one more time. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. You know what banish means? If I banished you, what am I doing? I'm putting you outside. Right? You, you can't come and say, you're outside now. You're banished. Can't come back in. He will banish all ungodliness. God, when he looks at his church, he's serious. This is my body on earth. And when a church begins to teach something outside of the scriptures, I believe God goes to work the same way today that he did when, when Romans 11 was being written. And if somebody asked me flat out, I would say, no, the church, the church in America today is actually under the discipline of God. It's under the discipline of God. And uh, so part of what I see happening in our world right now, today, is God is disciplining His church, saying, church, come back. Come back to what I called you to be. Come back to my word. Come back to what it means to, to, to bring hope to the world. Because the same thing that's happening in Romans is happening right here uh, in our world today. And I, I truly believe that. Um, if you continue on, go up to verse number 28. He says, As regards to the gospel, they, namely the Jews, are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Don't make this into something that it's not. I've had people take this verse and say to me, Aha! See? See what it says about the Jews? In regards to election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. That, that in the end, that all Jews will be saved. I'm like, no, don't. That's out of, you're taking this, this verse out of context. Um, what he's saying is that God did elect Israel to be his chosen people to take the gospel to the world in that time. And he never abandons them. Even though he removes the lamps and never abandons them. God is constantly at work trying to bring even Jews uh, back into the faith uh, today. And last week we, we noticed that uh, the fastest growing place in the globe for Christianity is Israel. And uh, so we're, we're uh, recognizing that, that even today God is bringing the gospel back to the Jews. Verse 29 says, For the gifts and the calling are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that the mercy shown to you, uh, they may now receive mercy. So, um, again, Jews, Gentiles, uh, God, God treats both the same. Uh, he brings His mercy to those who seek His forgiveness, and He brings His judgment to those who do not. Verse 32 is pretty significant. For God has consigned, 
This is my ESV translation. Some of you may have a different word there. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Consigned. Anyone have a different translation? Bound. Bound. Okay. Okay. The, the actual Greek term here, soon eklason, probably is best translated as bound. Probably is the best translation. Think about what this means. For God has bound all to disobedience that he have, may have mercy on all. We've been asking this question throughout our study of Romans. Freedom of choice, freedom of will. Do I have free will? Okay, so go back to the time of Luther. We're in the 1500s. Two books are written. One is written by a uh, famous um, his, historian, linguist by the name of Erasmus. One is written by a guy that some of you will know his name is Martin Luther. Erasmus, in the 1500s, writes a book called Freedom of the Will. Today, that book stands at the heart of evangelical theology. We have free choice in everything. We can choose God, or we can choose to reject God. Luther comes along and writes a different book. You know what the title of Luther's book was? Bondage of the Will. Luther wrote his book. If you've never, if you've never read it, Bondage of the Will, it's not that easy to understand, but it's probably one of the best theological treatises you'll ever read on, on what, our, what we have capacity to do and not to do in terms of, of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Here, you're hearing the word bound. And what, what is being said is exactly what Luther writes in his book. He says, well, guess what? When we come into this world, we don't, we, have, we are slaves to sin. We're dead to sin. It's the same thing as Paul says in Ephesians 2. For you were once, what, dead in your trespasses. Luther used to ask the question, do dead people make choices? I mean, when you're dead, like in your, your lying in state, have you ever heard a dead pastor, a dead person get up and go, I don't like this casket. I want a different casket. I wanted, I wanted a big red one. I, why are you putting me in a, in a Michigan colored casket, for goodness sakes, right? I mean, that's really dead, right? So give me the big red casket. And I've never heard a dead person ever make a single decision in their entire life. What this is saying is you were bound. <laughs> What's that? How about the elections? How about the elections? Oh, yeah, that's true. So he says, when he says God has bound people to disobedience that he may have mercy on, what he's saying is that the effect of the fall was what? That God put us all under a curse in order that he might all have mercy upon us all through Jesus Christ. We do have the freedom of the will to reject Jesus Christ. We have that freedom. But when you choose him, it's because the Holy Spirit has brought you to faith. And out of faith, you say, I choose Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. It's God's work first inside of us. Before my mouth speaks, I desire to follow Jesus. God is at work first. Because of that, he kind of closes this section out with what we'll call a doxology. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. His ways and judgments are unsearchable. And his 
his pathways are without tracing. I think our, our translation says, inscrutable is his way, but his pathways are untraceable. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? By the way, you know where those words come from? Do you recognize them? Book of Job, right? Um, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Remember when Job started mouthing off to God and God said to Job, Job, are you my counselor? You're not my counselor. Were you there when I made the earth? No, you weren't there when I made the earth. No one is that. So we're saying, hey, why, how could, why should God put everybody under bondage? Because God is gone and his ways are unsearchable. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Then he closes out with these words, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the ducks of the glory forever and ever. Note that he is present at all times. So he closes out this section. And the intention of chapter 11 has been to really answer a criticism that's come against Paul and against the Christians. And the criticism is, uh, why, are you, why are you abandoning the Jews? And now why are you trying to bring the gospel to the Gentiles? Didn't Jesus tell us to bring the gospel to the Jews? Paul's answer is, yes, he did. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus called us to go first to the lost house of Israel. But it's time. Now, the lampstand has left this place to go to the Gentiles. <clears throat> I do want to start chapter 12. And we've got just a few minutes to do that. Because I have to say, while chapter 11 is sometimes can get tricky to understand, chapter 12 has to be one of my absolute favorite sections of Scripture. And it's one that I'm going I'm I'm to really encourage you to... Uh, uh, to allow to, to just come into your life. Um, he's just finished saying to God be glory forever and ever. And he begins to talk about how God is working now in our lives. Just look at these words with me. Beginning verse 1. He says, So I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, because of what's just been said, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I'm going to try to pick on a couple of words here. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. What would happen to you if each morning you woke up and you literally went through a little exercise where you said, I'm going to present God myself to you today for your use. The word holy means that. It means to set aside for God's use. Present your bodies as a sacrifice. You know what a sacrifice is? When you put a sacrifice on the table, that sacrifice has to be what? Killed. You know what? When I come before God, I say to Him, the first movement I want to make, I'm presenting myself to you, is I want you to put to death that very real part of my life that wants to come against you. And I want you, to, I want you instead to make me useful for your kingdom's work. So start the day like this. God, I want to give my hands to you. I want to give my hands to you. Let my hands be found doing what you called me to do. Lord, I want to give my mouth to you. Let the words that come out of my mouth 
be useful to your kingdom and be a blessing to others. Would America look different if we did? If we, if we were living this way, would it look a little bit different today? Uh, yeah. Let my words. Lord, I, I want to give you my mind. Allow my mind to be used in a way that will bring blessing to your kingdom. So what Paul starts this out with is, I want to teach you a little bit about worship. Here's what I'm calling you to do, to present your very self to God as someone who's set aside for, your, for his use. And he uses the term now for this is your spiritual worship. In the Bible, there are several different terms for worship. Um, Proskunue is worship. We say it in English this way, to prostrate oneself. Sometimes a, par a part of worship is coming before the king and laying flat down on our faces and saying, have mercy on me. Now, I, I tend to believe that quite often me, Luke, I'm not going to judge anyone else, but it's easy for me to just go through the paces of saying that, like, hey, Lord, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you I, by virtue of my nature. Prostrate means I come before God, literally laid down before Him, saying, God, I don't deserve your mercy. I don't. I really don't. But I'm praying, I'm praying, will you give me that mercy? That's worship. Okay. Um, as, per, as a guy who's lived through, over my course of my years, the worship wars where we get engaged in, you know, what kind of music you should have and what kind of instruments to have, I'm like, forget all of that. Think about what the Bible calls worship. Starts what? On our faces before God. Proskuneo is a form of worship. The other word for worship is diakinia. It means to serve God. It means when I come before God and say, God, how can I be of service to you? The word that's used here is probably my favorite. Logike means to, to live out the word. And so part of it is when, I, when I'm raised up by God, from that place of saying, God, I don't deserve your mercy, I'm raised up to do what? To live out the word. Get the word in me in such a way that I live it out every day. And um, to, to present myself then to God is to say, I, this is what I need, God, is you, you changing me so that I'm able to live in the way that you've called me uh, to live. Um, Paul kind of picks this up in verse 2. He says, don't be conformed to this world. The world is calling you, pulling you to be like it. But instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect towards God's will. I'm going to close with this simple thought. This is kind of fun today. Um, when I come before God to live out the world, the word, I'm living in a world that's kind of confusing. What does it mean to test and be able to, to discern what God's will is? I'm going to use this little example that kind of popped in my head this week. Um, as a parent, I teach my kids how to respond to strangers, right? I make sure that they know, hey, if, you're, if some stranger comes up to you and they say, oh, hey, your mom, they told me to pick you up and give you a ride and take you home, what, what should you do? Well, as a parent, I'm scared to death for my kids and my grandkids. So I teach my kid, you better test that, right? Because if it's a stranger, if you're someone, someone that, that, that you don't know, what should you do? 
You don't get in the car with them. You don't go with them. You, you run the other direction. I show them how to do that. Here are three words that God is giving you to use every single day when it comes to the decisions that you make about what you're doing or saying. Um, ask yourself these three questions. They're just the words right out of this text. Is it good? According to God's will, is this good? Should I speak these words to this person? Is it good? Will God be pleased by it? Is it acceptable? If I handed it to God, would He accept it? Would He say, oh yes, I accept that. And is it perfect? Will it perfect me? Will it make me stronger? Will it make me be the person that God has called me to be? Because if not, then I'm not going to do it. I'm going to walk away from it. Live in a way that tests what the world is telling you. And it tests it according to this word and ask the questions, is it good? Is it acceptable? Will it perfect me? Will it make me stronger as a follower of Jesus Christ? Um, that is what it means to live out uh, the Word of God. Last week, I'm just going to share this with you, then we'll pray. Um, we dismissed from class, and I loved this class so much that I ran down to the other side, and while I was walking right by the sanctuary and looked in, the worship had already started, and Pastor Mike was saying these words. Now arise for the reading of the gospel, which happens to be the text that we're going to preach on. I was walking by the sanctuary at that moment. And so I thought to myself, I can't tell Pastor Mike to slow down because he's already standing up saying this is the gospel of the Lord. So I ran in last week and I, went, I said, excuse me for not wearing a robe. <laughs> I grabbed my microphone and went at it. Thus, the timer today, okay? <laughs> Let's pray. Lord God, as we uh, close out, what is worship? Well, I know what it is. It's, it's, uh, there, there's a right kind of worship and a wrong kind of worship. There's this kind of instrument and that kind of instrument. Lord, help us forget all of that. Worship is about presenting ourselves to you. I want to put me in your hands. It's about asking the question, Lord, would you transform me? I don't want to be conformed to this world. I don't want to be like it. Lord, we shouldn't look like it at all. It's about asking the questions and testing what the world is setting in front of me. Is this good? Is this what you've called me to be? Is it acceptable to you, God? Will it strengthen me? And Lord, help us live out the word in a way that we are your living sacrifices. Uh, we want to make a difference. We want to make a difference as parents in our kids' lives. We want to make a difference as grandparents in our grandkids' lives. We want to make a difference in this city. But we can't, Lord, unless we present ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys have a great week to come.